thank you for taking the time to check out the Insight Myanmar podcast. If you like what you hear, we'd be very grateful if you would consider rating, reviewing, and or sharing this podcast. Every little bit of feedback helps. Also, be sure to subscribe to the Insight Myanmar podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If our feed is not in your podcast player, please let us know and we'll assure it can be offered there. Do not lose hope. Do not lose faith. Most importantly, do not lose the momentum. to an interview I conducted with Claire Thorpe. She describes her journey into meditation through the 10-day Vipassana courses of SN Goenka and her subsequent visits to India and Burma. She also goes into why she started up Sati Designs, a company based in England, which, in her words, quote, creates thoughtfully designed ethical meditation cushions to enhance your living space and inspire you to invest time in your well-being, end quote. Sati Designs meditation cushions are ethically sourced and beautifully designed to serve yogis in all sitting postures. As Claire has also been following the democracy movement in Myanmar since the coup, she has generously offered to donate 20% of all sales at Sati Designs to our nonprofit mission, Better Burma, which supports urgent humanitarian missions across Myanmar. This special promotional period starts today, October 14th, and runs for two weeks through October 28th. Whether one makes a purchase as a gift or for oneself, a quality meditation cushion can support a lifetime of practice. And in this case, the cushion is the added benefit of serving as an expression of gratitude, knowing that a part of the proceeds went back to support those in the country where these priceless teachings of liberation are disseminated and preserved. To learn more about Claire's company, head to satidesign.com. And with that, let's get into my discussion with her. Happy to be joined in this episode of Insight Myanmar Podcast with Claire Thorpe. She's the founder of Sati Design, which we're going to hear a lot more about. They have some very exciting products that I think are very uh, relevant for many of our, our listeners and connected with what's going on in Myanmar now as well. So Claire, thanks so much for joining us here. Hi, thanks for having me. 
Let's get right into understanding a bit about what your company does, how it was founded, and what it produces. I, When I looked on the website, I was quite interested to read uh, all the descriptions behind uh, not just the products you offer, but how they're made and why you went about founding this mission, which is basically meditation cushions, making a very special type of meditation cushion. So uh, describe a bit about why you wanted to start this company, what led to that, and then learning a bit about how these products are made and put together. Mm. Yeah, so um, Sati was was born out of... Um, I, I basically started meditating about eight years ago and it's it changed my life completely. Um, I sat a course at Dharma Deepa Vipassana Center, um, did a 10-day a 10-day course there, and um, inspired by my my partner at the time actually who was practicing and I was very intrigued about this um, this technique and I, I would see him get up every morning at you know sort of early in the morning sit for an hour um, and, I, and it just really sort of you know that it sparked an interest in me I was intrigued like what is he doing I, I didn't really understand it you know I, I was quite sort of um, uh, I would ask him afterwards, like, what are you doing for that whole hour? How are you s- staying so still? Um, and, um, yeah, and so that sort of really started me um, thinking about meditation and, you know, and and, and sort of the, the benefits I could see in, in him, you know, working in his life, it really... Um, yeah, it interested me. So I, I went and took a course and it, it blew me away, um, this this first course of mine. Um, it was extremely difficult, but I I got through it and I, I was just absolutely astounded um, by the results. Um, and I... It's funny because after that first course, I sort of, I said to myself, oh my gosh, I'm never doing that again. It was so hard. Um, and but even though I said that, I sort of knew there was, there was something in it. There was, there was some sort of pull there, um, almost like a sort of magnetic pull that I felt towards the practice um, just because it was so powerful. And, and Sure enough, after about six months, I, I went back and I served. Um, and I and I think after that service, I really, I really started to realize um, just how, how, um, yeah, I guess just how powerful this technique and the, the whole practice was. Um, and over these eight years, I have been sitting and serving on, on a fairly regular basis. Um, and so a few years ago, I, I thought, right, I need, I need to invest in a, a meditation cushion, you know, so that I can practice at home and in between retreats. Um, and I went online to, to, to find a, a cushion that, that I liked and there were many cushions available, of course, um, but they, you know, they sort of prized 
function over aesthetics, it seemed that that was more, um, you know, that was kind of the main selling point um, of these cushions. And I thought actually what I what I really wanted was a cushion that was, um, that I, I felt was sort of had some sort of soulful element to it or, or a, you know, um, that was aesthetically pleasing, a cushion that I would happily have in the corner of my bedroom and keep out, you know, not have to, not have to pack away. Um, so, you know, and then this quote kept coming back to me, which was, you know, create the things you wish existed. And, and I thought, well, maybe there is a, you know, there's an opportunity here for me to fuse my passions, which you know, our meditation and textiles and um, my sort of creative calling um, because I did textiles at, at uni. Um, and this sort of led me on a journey where I went to India um, for a few months and I went to Jaipur, which is the, uh, it's, you know, the sort of the home and the heart of um, handicrafts. So, block printing and um, things like that so I and I've always loved traveling and I've always loved India um, yeah and and what happened was you know I ended up doing this um, incredible course um, in natural dyeing so using using plants to dye fabrics um, and um, and also block printing with natural substances like mud um so I did this course and 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 through this course I just met some incredible people who um who just you know taught me all these incredible skills and it all just kind of came together and I just thought yeah this is this is the time and it really feels like Sati is is this, it's, it's all, all these values aligning for me. Um, and, and I, you know, Sati, for those of you who, who know anything about Pali, Sati means awareness. Um, and it's so, you know, the reason to call this, this company Sati, um, is just because it, it came about because of, this very, um, you know, I wanted the, the process to be a very conscious one where we were using, um, you know, that the impact on the environment was very low, um, using natural dyes and, um, yeah, and processes. But also just this very, you know, the nature of block printing, it's, it's a very mindful um, technique because it's, you know, it's very hands-on. You have a, a wooden block that's been intricately carved. And it's, you know, so you're having to print um, very, well, I mean, they do it very quickly. But when I was learning, I was having to do it very slowly because it's very much about, like, you know, the pressure of the, the block on the fabric, um, getting, getting it evenly, you know, evenly sort of, um, spaced and things like that so yeah so I just think the whole process is very 
is very mindful, which I feel is, you know, absolutely in line with the, the actual function of the product, which is to, to cultivate mindfulness. Um, yeah. Mm, yeah, that's that's great to hear. And I think one of the things that I appreciated when I saw your website and saw the products, uh, going back, I guess, a bit into just the practice of meditation. I, I remember when I first started out and a, a, a group of peers around my age, we were, I was living in Japan at the time, so some, some Japanese and some foreigners that were there and we were all kind of getting into the groove more seriously together. And when the courses would end, we would go somewhere in the Japanese countryside and hang out for a few days and, our, and do our sittings. And I remember at one point, someone after a sitting, one of the guys just kind of turning to me and saying, you know, the, the, one of the great things about meditation is we don't need anything to do it. We, we can just, this is something we could do anywhere. We don't need to buy anything. We don't need to, to be anything. We can just, it's just this thing we get to discover and, and practice inside ourselves. And that kind of minimalist uh, attribute of the practice, really, uh, that quote always hung in my mind. And when you think about the practice of meditation, you really don't need much. And the only two things I can really think that that you need are some kind of cushion and some kind of blanket or, or shawl. I, I don't know mm. what else you really need for that practice to to just mm. simply do it. And you don't even really need those things. I mean, all of us have med- who have meditated have med- have had have meditated in some some probably rather strange places just out of necessity, just with whatever was around makeshift. But those are the things that are that uh, to really be comfortable you need. And as far as the shawl, you know, I, I have one of my most prized objects is is the shawl I was given. I I before I had been to India and I'd seen these older meditators in the West having these Indian shawls. And to me it always seemed like this mark of like, you know, like you've made it or you've you you you're some kind of seriousness uh, or legitimacy that you you have this um, you have this really nice, thin, beautiful shawl that you're wrapping around yourself in just this elegant, graceful way. And I, I happened to mention that to a friend of mine who later became a Vipassana teacher and then later uh, left that, became a monk, and he's a, a lifelong monk in, um, between Thailand and, and Canada now. And he, I said this to him, and he gave me this shawl, and I immediately said, "Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I wasn't saying that, you know, to like like remind you that I wanted a shawl, and you had an extra one to give me, and you know, now I feel bad about it." And he said, "No, no, no." He said, "Actually," and he gave it to me, and he said, "But you know, I give you this, and if you become enlightened, you have to remember I gave you this shawl and send me send me merits." And I kind of laughed, <laughs> and he he didn't return the laugh, and he said, "No, I'm I'm serious. Like I'm giving you this shawl because I know that you're you're a serious meditator." But if you attain any stage, you have to remember that this is the shawl that I gave you and, and share the merits with me at that time. And I said, yes, yes, okay, you got it. And uh, that's, you know, that was two decades ago. And that's still the shawl that, uh, that, that I have around and that whole memory and, and gratitude and, you know, friendship w- with him. And then when I went to India, I, that was one of the things on my list. Like, I was like, I want to find where do I get these meditation shawls and looked all around and ended up finding a few I liked and brought them back for those closest to me as, you know, the special gifts that this is just as I had received this from this person that meant so much to me, this was, this was the, the, the intention I was giving it to others. So, you know, so the, the shawl part of it, and I, I should mention, I'm really happy to say that I see that Pariyati is now selling Indian shawls. And so 
those that don't have to travel across the world or have a mm-hmm. friend who does, you can actually, you, you can get those, uh, those accoutrements are available now. Um, maybe it takes away some of the mystique, but, um, you know, it's great that those, mm-hmm. those are accessible, but the other part is the cushion. And when I started to practice as well, same as you, it's like, well, what, where, where do I buy the cushion? And at that time, 20 years ago, there, there just weren't that many options. And most of them were, they did not look like they were designed by meditators. They looked like they were designed by people that were like, this is, you know, meditation, yoga, cushion, whatever you want to do. And it just, it didn't for knowing how I sat, they just, they weren't made with any comfort. So my mom actually just made them for me, just bought padding and basic, um, textile and just, just made something, um, workable. I could sit on that was, uh, you know, that did that, that did the function that been around for since that time. But so all of this comes back to what you're doing. And, you know, when you look at these these two basic things, you don't need to, to meditate. Well, to meditate, as we said, you don't need anything. But if you do need something, these are the only two things I can really think of that you need are a a, a cushion and a shawl. You have that, you're good to go anywhere. And yeah, um yeah. and you know, and you are that's, that's absolutely you're, right. Right. And you're, you're bringing the cushion part in. So this is kind of just this theoretical background I'm thinking of when I see this and you know, that this is, this is the value you're bringing and that people that, that, um, just as this shawl that I got is so meaningful to me and so imbued with, um, with, with just so much deep significance of what, how it was given and what it means and how it was made. I think for a meditation cushion, I mean, this is, if it's properly made, this is something that as a serious practitioner, you buy for life. And that mm-hmm. if it is, if it is ethically sourced and made in a mindful way, and, and then of course, you know, has to have, has to be, uh, have the, the, the practical way of being made that's suitable for, you know, many, many hours of sitting. If it has all, all those features combined, then this is something that is just, just your friend that accompanies you with everywhere you go. So, yeah, so these are just some of my thoughts yeah. I had when I started to see your process and think about my own background in meditation. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for sharing those things. Um, yeah, and and I I really do agree with you that it's um you know a cushion is it's a sacred it's a sacred object, isn't it? Um, that like you say, it you will use you know perhaps daily for the rest of your life and so it's it's significant and um yeah and I think that this was one of the things that um you know that I felt like I wanted to um inspire is is that I wanted to create these beautiful cushions that would almost kind of call you, you know, it be a sort of uh, an inspiration to you to to sit more, <laughs> um, you know, because if you've got a lovely setup um, in your in your bedroom, in your living space, whatever. Um, for me personally, that is a it's it's an invitation to to sit more. Um, you know, and I, I know that it doesn't it doesn't need to be a beautiful cushion for you to be able to meditate because, like you say, you know, we we can sit on any cushion um, or even no cushion. You know, sometimes it's fine. You can meditate anywhere, but um, I think I think for me personally, I'm quite an aesthetic person, and I've always been interested in 
um, sort of interiors and the way that your environment affects the way you feel and the way that energy flows through a house and all of these things. And so I, I think it's, um, you know, helping people to create a sacred space that they can devote to that practice is, um, I think it's really, it's really important and um yeah it's just a, a nice a nice incentive isn't it you know on those days where perhaps we don't really feel like practicing you know because those days do come where you sort of um you feel a bit uninspired but if you've got this lovely setup um just waiting for you it's perhaps it's a little you know it's a little invitation there yeah, and I think the whole intentionality of the sacred, the, or, to follow, piggyback on a word that you use that I, uh, mm-hmm. I definitely agree with um, concerning uh, concerning how to make a meditation space that you know whether it's a time of day or a place in the house or a um, you know what what one is using. Some people um, might even do something like aromatherapy or have some kind of chanting or just something that mm-hmm. that makes it sacred in the day that this is this is a, a away from other parts of life and there's there's a place mm-hmm. for it and one can go there and it becomes more of a refuge than something that bleeds over with everything else. So mm-hmm. that it definitely can serve that purpose. And I think having before I saw your page, I just hadn't really seen a lot of other products that came with that intentionality. Often it looked like it was the other way around. It looked more like a a marketing or an entrepreneurial um, opportunity where someone was just trying to tap into this existing crowd. Rather, it's someone from within that crowd thinking, as, as you said earlier in, uh, in this interview, that if, uh, I can't remember the words you used, but to create something that you want to see that doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, if it's a product not being marketed for a group, but actually coming from within that group to fill an existing need, then it, uh, it, um, it, it can it can create that significance. And then more importantly, once it comes into someone's life, that can then be, uh, it can take on an even greater significance from, you know, of course, how it's, how it's made and how it's produced and the mindful qualities of those are one thing. But then as it's, Mm -hmm. as it's used for that daily practice, it takes on quite another uh, set of meaning over the years. Um, Mm -hmm. But I'm wondering also if you, you talked a bit about the block printing that you do, can you describe a bit more of the process? And I should say that on your website, you go into a lot of detail about the different aspects of how this is, uh, how, how you've come to make these and how it's sourced and what's inside it and everything else. Mm-hmm. It's quite fascinating. For those that aren't on the website now, can you walk us through some mm-hmm. of the more interesting parts of production and also your decision-making process and actually going to Jaipur and how you chose which communities you wanted to work with, how you monitor the work they're doing, how their process of working goes into your methodology and your beliefs and what you wanted to create? Yeah. So, um, so in terms of um, the actual process, um, the way it, it's it's wonderful how it's all unfolded because um, you know I went to Jaipur um, with with my my friend Ben um, and we we just it, it all just evolved like so organically. We just ended up meeting people. We so we had the intention to to go and create these cushions and um 
And Ben was interested in, in block carving, so the, carving the wooden blocks. So we went to the area in Jaipur. There's an area called Sanganir. Uh, and it's this, uh, it's the, the block carving sort of area, you know, it's it's literally, that is all anyone's doing there. And there's this particular street, which is um, uh, where all the workshops are. And so you walk down this street and it's just incredible, the sound of the, the tapping, they use these tiny little chisels um, and, a, and a wooden block to sort of hit the top of the chisel. Um, and And it's just... It's so fascinating, you know, it's like all these workshops and, and they have, they don't have doors or anything on the workshops, so you can just see straight in and there's about like four or five guys in this tiny little space, you know, all obviously sitting on the floor as they're very good at doing in, in India um, and just, just chipping away, all bent over chipping away at these, at these wooden blocks and um, so we went down this this street and he actually, um, we were with an Indian friend of ours and so she was able to translate for us because he, he wanted to find someone who could teach him how to how to carve. So yeah, so our friend Nidhi um, was, was able to kind of uh, to ask this one man whether um, whether he could teach teach Ben to, to carve and he, he agreed and so so he started teaching Ben how to carve um, over the course of a few weeks, um, and I think it got a little bit difficult with the with the translation because obviously Ben couldn't communicate; he couldn't speak Hindi. Um, so after a while, there was a there was a man called Calmfear who worked in a workshop sort of down further down the road who could speak English and would come and see Ben, you know, and see how he was getting on, and they would chat and. Anyway, Convier ended up taking Ben on um, in the end, just because it was an easier setup. But yeah, Convier um, showed Ben how to, um, you know, how to how to carve these blocks, and and I think Ben was quite um, he was quite uh, surprised at how difficult it was, because these, you know, they so they have a set of chisels. And they're all ever so slightly different. So they have slightly different tips and slightly different ends. And, you know, you hit them in a slightly different way. So um, I think, but I think they were all very entertained by, <laughs> you know, by this Westerner sort of giving it a go. They thought it was great and they were very encouraging. Um, and over time he got really quite good and he was able to do more intricate designs and the way that it was working is I was drawing the designs um, on graph paper and then I would I would give them to Ben and then he would he would carve the wooden block. Um, it's Indian rosewood that they use for the for the blocks. And then yeah, like I say, I, I did this this natural dye course, um, which was actually just outside Jaipur in a in a village called Bagru. Um, so this is a village that's very well known for its natural dyeing, um, and there's a lot of families who, you know, have have maintained the tradition because it's a it's a, you know, sadly it is a um, a, a dyeing tradition just because, you know, chemical dyeing is is much more, um, you know, it's easier to sort of mass manufacture um, chemically dyed fabrics. So. Um, so it's a very niche, um, you know, it's a very niche process, but incredibly beautiful. 
Um, and yeah, and so after I'd finished this course, I, I had a word with the, the people who, who own this particular um, workshop. And it really is a workshop. It's not a factory at all. There's like two people who run it. And then there's a, a man called Shivraji who is like a print master. And he, um, he comes from a, you know, a whole line, his whole family. This is what they've done. They've always just done block printing and natural dyeing. Um, so, yeah, I had a word with, with them and just said, look, would you be open to helping me produce these, these um, meditation cushions? But, you know, really the covers, not, not the actual cushions. Um, and, they, and they said they would be. So, um, so between Ben and Karmavir, who were, who were carving the blocks, and then um, Avinash and Kriti and Shivraji, who were the, the dyeing, um, dyeing and printing, people um we were able to print these beautiful covers um and then we had to source someone who could create the insides of the cushions and we've got a few different styles and sizes and shapes and things of cushion um so but the the there's a boot on the the big square floor cushion and we have some rectangular smaller cushions that you would place on that floor cushion um, we found a, a man called Muckball to make the um, the sort of cotton inner for for those cushions. And actually, I found him through. Um, I, I sat a course at Dharmatali in Jaipur, and I inquired about where they got their cushions made. Because when I was sitting the course, I was thinking, oh yeah, you know, that's that's an obvious. Um, that's an obvious link to make, you know, because they will have employed someone to, to make these cushions. So they very kindly um, pointed me in the direction of, of Muckball. And again, he is, you know, it's it's a family business. He works from his, um, you know, just basically basement of his house. Um, and all his family help, his mum's there, his daughters. Um, he doesn't speak any English, so his daughters... Um, well, one particular daughter would translate for us, um, which was al always very helpful, uh, especially when you're dealing with dimensions and things, you don't want to get it too wrong. Um, so, yeah, so between all these all these sets of people, we were just able to create, we sort of linked them up um, and, you know, and just so production now um, luckily can actually happen you know, from afar because everything's in place now um, for for it to happen. So if we we need to reorder things, we can just um, we can just ask the relevant people to make the things, and you know they're all connected. So um, yeah, so it's just it's it's all just been um, yeah. I don't know. I I think the intention was so strong. Um, for this particular venture, for this particular project. I just think everything, you know, sometimes things just conspire to, to help you. And, and I really feel like that happened, especially because when, when we were in India, it was, it was 2020 and COVID hit just as we were kind of in the middle of this project. And, you know, when I look back at, at the timing 
of, of all of this. It's quite astonishing, really, because we we basically managed to finalise production just before lockdown actually actually sort of hit. So, which is I just I still can't quite believe how we managed to get it all you know, all the kind of like threads tied up, so to speak, um, and everything finalised and everyone knew what they were doing. Um, and then lockdown hit and then Ben and I were, you know, we're in an apartment for a, a month or so, just, you know, could sort of go out for a couple of hours a day and that was it. Um, so it was quite a crazy trip, that, that, uh, that first one. Mm, that's great. So you mentioned about the different patterns that are made and the style of making them. <clears throat> Is there any significance or background to the patterns that are chosen? Like, are there deeper meanings or um, significance of what the the patterns refer to? Or do they have ethnic or cultural background or connections? Or what uh, what goes into the patterns that end up being created on them? Mm, so I guess the, yeah, the prints that I've... Um, that I've designed are, um, I mean, I, they don't necessarily have any, um, there, there wasn't a sort of conscious effort to, um, you know, create symbolism or anything. Um, I'm just, I like, I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of mark making and, um, and quite minimalist, um, design. So I think, um, that was, you know, that was really my, um, you know, they, they don't necessarily have any deeper meaning. Um, although the we do have one print which is a like a sort of fleck, um, which is created using mud, um, and we've called that the Anicca print because um, we wanted to use, uh, you know, sort of we did want to to call them significant things and um as anyone who has done a vipassana course will know you know anicca is um it's impermanence and for for some reason we looked at this print and it just it just looked like anicca <laughs> it's a sort of strange thing to say i know but it was like oh yeah that's that one's definitely anicca that one um but it wasn't intentional so yeah, I wish I could say <laughs> it's it's mm. uh, it was deeper meaning, but but no, it's more just the the aesthetic is is minimal mm. and um, and calming. You know, I wanted to use just sort of simple um, shapes and yeah. Mm, right, and how about the filling? What have you what have you found to be able to stuff the the cushions with? So the. Um, our floor cushions and, like I said, the rectangular cushions, and also we have some knee cushions um, to support your knees. Um, they're all stuffed with cotton, and um, so they're all stuffed by this this man, Muckball, um, and it's really fabulous. His workshop is um, wonderfully uh, sort of chaotic and. Um, how would I describe it? Um, basically, sort of, there's a there's a simplicity, you know, to the way he, he works. Um, you know, he's he's very. I think he's quite a sort of traditional man, and um, 
So when Ben and I went to go and see his his little workshop, um, you know, it's like it, it's just sort of like cushions everywhere, fabric everywhere, and then he's got this wonderful back room where he has this fantastic machine, which is. I suppose the only way I could describe it is it looks like almost like a Victorian mangle. Um, it really does look ancient. And he wanted to show us this machine. And we were like, oh, what does this machine do? And he went and he, he turned it on at the wall. And it basically, what it does is he, he when he buys the cotton in, it is it comes in um, sort of quite solid, in a solid form. So it's like a sort of cotton batting, like a, a cotton filling. Um, and what he does is he sort of feeds it through this machine. And this machine, I don't really know how it works, but it fluffs the cotton up and then it sort of spits it out the, the other side in these kind of like almost like cotton clouds. These sort of puffs of, of cotton come out the other side. And he has a curtain to stop all these, these cotton clouds kind of just taking over the entire room. And then he goes behind the curtain with these two, two wooden sticks, and almost like big chopsticks, and he kind of collects up these cotton clouds um, to then stuff the cushions with. So we were just absolutely fascinated by this this process. Um, and what was funny is he he couldn't understand what we found so amazing because we were la we were laughing. We were just like, wow, this is just incredible and you know but this is his every day um which was really funny <laughs> because uh, you know he was like well this is just what I do so um yeah so we fill those ones with with cotton um but then we also have uh, the zafu cushion which is the round cushion and those are, are filled with spelt husks um so spelt husks are basically a waste product um, it's the husk of the um, spelt flour grain. And there really are very few uses for these husks. So, um, But they make a fantastic cushion filling because they're very light and um, malleable as well. So they're, they're ideal for really, you know, you can really kind of get a good seat going with those. You can really sort of mould mold yourself to them. Mm, that's great. And that actually leads to my next question, looking at the design and um, sitting options that you chose. And I think for those who haven't meditated before, there's this kind of idealized uh, imagination of a Buddha statue or kind of new age um, uh, photos that, that just show a, a, perf a person sitting in sunlight around the beach, just perfectly their, their <laughs> back erect and their, um, their, their legs just evenly balanced and their hands open. And sometimes it's funny when you go on meditation courses where you see first time students, you'll see the first several hours, you'll see students sitting in that kind of perfect, um, uh, supposed understanding 
understanding of how one should sit. And then, of course, as one practices meditation further, you, you know, as as you're working through different things in the mind and body, you can end up in some pretty odd postures and pretty odd <laughs> facial expressions and, you know, and everything else. And so there's there's this reality of what it's actually like to sit. And people who do that every day know that. And then there's the imagination of the the, the, the bliss and the perfect posture that uh, that we see is, is how it's advertised. Of course, being a meditator, you know the former and you know the, the um, how uh, how sitting actually takes place and also the different different body shapes, different limitations of bodies, different um, uh, different ways of sitting might lead to different things in the meditation. So people might experiment and try different kinds of postures to experiment with that process and as well as obviously age and other things. And so uh, I think just simply going to a meditation course, you see all the different ways that people are navigating, especially in the West. I think in, in, in Burma, it's, uh, it's quite different. I mean, people just sit on, uh, on hard rock or wood or, or whatever else. I often laugh in, in Burma, the, a sign of how, um, uh, how serious or or austere someone is, a monk or a practitioner, is it sitting? You simply look at their their ankle their their ankle bone, and for those who have really put in the hours, and mostly it's on hard wood, you see that ankle bo- bone just completely worn away and calloused from uh, resting on that wood. And all my time in Burma, <laughs> I I still couldn't do that. I just I, I foot what a sleep and just pain beyond what I was able to endure and needed. Some, sometimes when there wasn't a cushion, it simply wasn't possible. I would do little tricks like putting like a sock, you know, right on the ankle bone or right above or or behind it just so that it just gave that little bit of, um, of relief there. But, uh, but I think certainly in the West, when you go to a course, you see all the different experimentations of how people sit and how they're, they're looking for some kind of basic comfort uh, to, to be able to engage in the process without being distracted. So as you were looking at uh, having this understanding and then as you were looking at the different types of options to make available, because again, this is something practical. This is not a, a uh, just a, a kind of pluff piece of um, wanting to, to look like it's fitting into the next big thing, but this is something that you actually want to be a uh, something of the sacred, something of a lifetime investment, something that that people will not just look good or, or have as a conversation piece, but something that is actually supporting and and promoting even their med- their daily meditation and something they come to, to love and imbue with meaning but for that they're in addition to beautiful prints they're also it also it needs to be practical and it needs to be practical for lots of different bodies lots of different postures lots of different uh, ways of people going with the practice so how did you as a meditator and then as a designer and entrepreneur think about the different styles of cushions to offer so that the many varied kinds of sitting methodologies can be accommodated through that. Mm. Yeah, that's an interesting question, actually, because um, this is one of the reasons that I I, I wanted to um, make the, the rectangular cushions in particular, because that was something that, um, for me, I, you know, I sat in quite a few different centers and, and most centers have those those cushions, the, the Vipassana centers, you know, um, you might get a few Zafu tight round cushions, but on the whole, the standard is those rectangular cushions. So I have practiced mainly on those the, that style of cushion rather than um, sort of a high, you know, because the Zafus tend to be a, a little bit higher. Um, so this was something that, um, that I wanted to create 
um, because I just couldn't find, although they seem to be ubiquitous in the centres, I couldn't seem to find them online. Um, and and I, you know, I do prefer I prefer a lower a lower seat. Um, so that's that's why I I've designed those ones in particular. Um, but what's interesting is that actually the majority of people want the the Zafu, you know, the, the round cushion. And I don't know if that's because it's just a more, that particular shape is um, more common. So people are more familiar with, with the shape, especially people who may not have done um, much meditation before. Um, that's what, when they think of a meditation cushion, that's what they think of. Um, yeah, so... And also the, another thing that was very difficult to find was knee cushions. Um, and, and that is a very practical uh, cushion. So, you know, I think unless you've done hours of meditation, you may not see the need for knee cushions. But, you know, at, at, when you're sitting a course, you, 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 it doesn't take long for you to realise that, you know, that actually... Yeah, like you said, with the sock on the ankle, it's like, oh gosh, yeah, you need to prop up limbs in weird places. And um, and yeah, it's funny what, what you said about, you know, newer students sort of trying things out because it's quite common, isn't it, to see um, these sort of Dharma thrones <laughs> sort of um, forming mm, um, <laughs> yeah, on, on Vipassana courses where, you know, students kind of, and, and I think I did the same, you know, that first course, it was like, oh, well, if I have another cushion here, then it will be easier. Oh, but maybe I need another cushion here, you know, and then you end up with um, a mountain of cushions and you realize that actually it helps a little bit, but it doesn't really make that mm -hmm. much difference how many cushions you, you have. It's, right. it's still going to be a bit painful. <laughs> Yeah, I think when I first went to Burma, I was just so impressed by the austere conditions that everyone, um, for the most part, <clears throat> is able to just bear through. And part of that, of course, is the culture. I mean, even like Japan or other Asian countries, they just are, as you mentioned with India, they just they live closer to the ground. Um, I remember from my time in Burma going back and telling my my grandfather, who was in his 80s at the time, that the elderly people I saw in Japan were all sleeping on the floor with uh, futons that they made every night. And I remember him just looking at me in, in absolute awe that, you know, and yet he said, if, if I were to try to sleep on the floor, I would never be able to stand up again. It just, it's a different way of living. And, and, um, but that being said, I, I, I was really moved by the, um, by how easy it seemed to be for Burmese of all parts of life to come into a meditation course or a sitting and just be able to just, to just sit and just, mm -hmm. just bear and just manage. And it had an impression on me. And then especially as I started to live in the society longer and I saw Westerners come and you'd see a, a, you know, a sitting at a pagoda or a cave or somewhere. And I would sometimes laugh about the, the, the ritual. It seemed to me of the Westerners spending 10 minutes preparing their sitting site, you know, blowing up cushions and taking out shawls and setting, you know, setting a place to sit and, you know, and, and, and the Burmese would just go and sit. And I was so influenced by the culture at that time and, and, and really trying to uh, to understand through their perspective and integrate into that, that I, I was probably a little judgmental and, and a bit like, oh, this is this kind of Western, these Western comforts and 
and and needs and everything else. But I think as I've as I've aged and matured and looked at it from a bit more perspective, I just see that like putting. Um, dedicating your life or at least even part of your life, whatever part that is, to a a practice of letting go and observing. This is so against the stream and so hard and so challenging that I'm just much easier than, you know, being a bit more hardcore and, and rigid in my beliefs when I was younger and just like whatever it takes to do that, you know, and mm-hmm. whatever, um, if, if you need a little more of this or a little less of that, but by getting that, that is able to more easily dedicate your life and in, in some way to undergoing that practice, that's a good thing. And, uh, of course, you know, it's wonderful to see the more uh, practitioners who who are coming with more of this dedication and perhaps even more sacrifice and more renunciation, one can say, renunciation of all types of things, that is, of course, very inspiring. But it's also, uh, it's a hard path. And, you know, life is hard. It's full of a lot mm-hmm. of dukkha and challenges and, uh, and unpredictabilities. And I think as you mature and gain a deeper appreciation of that, you realize that having a little bit of this and that to just ease into that spiritual renunciation, that, um, that's, that, that's really okay for people doing what they need to be able to make that space and make that time, which, you know, really so few are doing and is so against the values of most worldly societies anyway. Mm. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And I think, um, there is that, you know, I think when you sort of start to walk a spiritual path, um, there is definitely, there's a, almost a bit of a danger, isn't there, that you can kind of go too, too extreme um, on the kind of like anti-materialism um, route mm-hmm. where you are, you're sort of, um, yeah, I, I guess you're denying yourself things that you don't need to deny yourself um, because you can still be, you can still be spiritual and live in abundance. You know, it's not it's not a prerequisite. Um, of course, there are um, there are advantages of of um, you know renouncing certain things. But but like you say, life life is is hard, and and sometimes we need we need certain comforts, and that's okay. And uh, you know, and and having a, a you know something like a a beautiful um, meditation cushion of course it's not going to be you know the top priority for a, a monk or a nun that it's a, a beautiful object but um, you know perhaps for for lay people that is more of a um, you know more of a, a need so Mm, and yeah. I, I want to bring the conversation a bit more to Myanmar. I understand that you took a trip, a pilgrimage there as a meditator. Can you share a bit about when when that was and where you went and the impressions uh, of that visit? Mm. So that was um, that was early 2016, I think it was. And um, so Myanmar as a as a country hadn't really been on my radar until I started practicing Vipassana. Um, and I, I really felt, uh, I was, I felt such a strong calling to, to visit. I think it was after like my, you know, second course or something. I just made this resolution in my head. It's like, I'm, I'm going to Myanmar. 
um, I, I have to go. I felt a real a real draw to the the country, um, you know, given given the incredible um, the the connections there with uh, with Vipassana and just the, the sense of gratitude that I felt towards this country and its people for preserving the technique and so I yeah so I I decided I was going to go but I could only get a a three-week visa I think it was Um, and I knew that I wanted to sit a 10-day course so you know I I sat the 10-day course and then I had maybe sort of yeah 10 days of of traveling so it wasn't very long uh, to actually see the place but um but I got, when I arrived, I got a taxi straight to the Vipassana Centre, um, which, uh, yeah, it was lovely. The, the taxi driver was, was telling me about the, the yatra that uh, Gwenka had done a few years before and how he, he was telling me how he had taken, uh, taken people around. And Yeah, he, he spoke very fondly of it. And I thought, wow, gosh, isn't this amazing? Like, I've just got in this taxi and this man... You know, he knows all about Vipassana. He's, you know, mm. knows about Gwenka. Like, it, it was just like, gosh, this is mm. this is so ingrained in the culture, the, the mm-hmm. you know, the Buddhist sort of, um, yeah, the Buddhist tradition is, is, you know, that was my first interaction. And I just thought, this is incredible. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I... And it was interesting because obviously all I could see was like out of the taxi, you know, that was that was kind of my my impression of Burma. And then I was kind of in this, you know, in the centre for 10 days with my eyes shut most of the time. So it was sort mm. of, it was an interesting introduction to the country because I was sort of hearing it more than I was seeing it actually, uh, which mm. was quite interesting. It was a very kind of fascinating experience because... I was hearing the birds and I was, you know, all these sort of exotic birds and I was hearing, because um, it was in, in Yangon, so it's Dharma Jyoti. It's Dharma Jyoti, yeah, right. That's, yeah. that's a, you hear a lot in Dharma Jyoti. Dharma Jyoti is one of the few Goenka centers in the world that's actually in a downtown location and it's on a street with a lot of monasteries and nunneries and you you hear a lot of Yangon on that street. So I, I can mm-hmm. imagine if you're not familiar or acquainted with Myanmar culture in any way, and then just landing at that center, you're just going to hear the daily sounds of life, of people selling things and of cars, yes. and then also of monasteries and nunneries and the chantings and the alms rounds and everything else. And not to mention, obviously, the, the birds and what and insects and whatnot, which you'd, you know, you'd hear anywhere. Yeah. So, yeah, it's yeah. quite a uh, stereo, uh, stereo uh, compilation that you get there, yeah. quite a mixtape. Absolutely. There was, I remember, um, I remember hearing like every every afternoon there was there must have been like a restaurant or something very close to my bedroom and there were all these men who used to sort of sing in the kitchen because it sounded like kitchen a kitchen they were kind of like pans mm. plunking and you know so I just it's interesting I had all these kind of visual um uh yeah, visual kind of ideas of what, what it looked like and what the people looked like. And mm-hmm. I mean, of course, there, you know, there were the people who were meditating, um, uh, the Burmese people who were meditating. And like you say, one of the things that struck me was like, gosh, a lot of these people don't even have cushions. <laughs> How are they doing it? Right. Um, yeah. yeah. So, um, 
but yeah, but I just, I felt such a warmth towards the country, even just in that, in, in the center. Um, I, 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 there was, a, I don't know, there was a sense of real familiarity um, with, with the place. And, and I think, you know, when I left the center and I started traveling and I, I didn't travel far, I only, I only made it to Inlay Lake and Bagan. Um, but I, I remember thinking I could spend months here um, and I wish I had had longer. I wish that I, you know, and, and so I had this idea that I was going to go back and spend a, a longer period of time um, traveling and going to different centers in, in Myanmar. Um, yeah, you know, which, uh, yeah, after the, after the coup, it was like, gosh, that's... Yeah, it was it was very um, yeah, just really harrowing to hear of of everything that's been happening. Mm, yeah, I, I felt the same thing on my first visit, and that's that's why I I went back. I was able to find a way. Uh, spent um, lived there fifteen years, and um, and was able to get uh, deeper into those initial things that I saw. And then, as one gets deeper, obviously, you you peer more into beyond the surface impressions and and even things at the time that see deep seem deep and and go more into um the nuances of how the culture works not that I'm I'm anywhere near an expert I think the deeper you go into it the more you realize what you don't know but I appreciated what you were saying as well about the taxi drivers that was something and I've said this on different interviews before but that was something that stood out to me so much was taxi drivers and hotel clerks and waiters and just uh, an assortment of people that when they found out I meditated, it, it wasn't just, oh, good for you, that's great, uh, which you don't even really get in the West so much because it can, uh, things are changing now, certainly, but but it can also be uh, a bit weird at times. But it would actually be discussions. It'd be like talking to them about the differences between the Mahasi and the Mogok techniques and why one worked better at understanding the mind clearly than the other or talking about scripture or talking about certain monk discourses or, or other things. And I was, uh, it was such a, um, a playground of, of Buddhist practice and more than, than a, a playground in the sense that one was able to learn so many different ways of applying and understanding the Buddhist teachings than just one method or one organization because there, there are so many varied pathways of how people made sense of it. But beyond being a playground, it was also like a PhD study or something where people were were so serious and so dedicated about what path they were on. And so to learn from monks as well as as lay people, certainly an assortment of lay people who were holding down jobs and businesses at the time, and to hear about how they were, what path they were on, how they, what they were renouncing or how they were following certain sets of discipline or what they were through their practice or their, their behavior or their, um, uh, certain volunteer services they might dedicate themselves towards how they were following in the path. And it just, it gave me, I think when I started to live there longer, it just gave me such a freedom and, and realizing that you really had this ownership uh, and this this freedom and flexibility to be able to to live uh, in, a, in, a, in a variety of ways and to choose how one lived and how one practiced 
that would fit under this umbrella and that that can change over time and that could that could you could also experiment i mean a lot of kind of playing i think that was something i didn't quite get before i came was the playful uh, idea of meditation. It always seemed like a very serious, rigid, exact pursuit of following, uh, adhering to the the law, the letter of the law of what those in meditation instructions were, which is definitely helpful when you're starting out to, to when you don't really understand what you're doing and you're mm-hmm. following these instructions by someone who knows more than you do. But as one progresses, there can be a kind of playfulness and a kind of experimentation. And let's, let's see how this is and let's see how that is and let's experiment with this. And uh, that was all things I learned there. Mm-hmm. by seeing how the society and how the different people would bring the teachings into their lives in different ways. And this is a culture that has been at it for much longer than we have and mm-hmm. has much deeper roots than we have over there. Not, And that doesn't mean they do everything right. They're definitely newcomers, can definitely uh, beginners, can definitely uh, bring a new perspective into things that where it's entrenched, they don't have. And so there's definitely a lot of advantages that we've seen how it's taken off in the West. But that, what those advantages are they the flip side of that is these deeply entrenched traditional um, patterns that have been there for 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 many years and that people can also work and explore and play within and so that kind of dynamic quality I, I, I just saw as fascinating and I think that that's I still think that's really not properly understood I think that a lot of times, Burmese Buddhism, for those who don't understand it, because everything looks the same, the monasteries and the monks and everything else, it looks the opposite of dynamic. It looks static. It looks like everyone's doing the same thing because the vinaya, the monastic code, and the um, and and the monks and nuns dress, of course, that everything looks similar. And, and so there could be a feeling that everyone is doing the same thing and they've been doing the same thing for a long time. And this is how things have been hundreds of years ago. And it is true that there's a, th- a thorough line of that type of tradition and teachings following forward. But there's also, if you look at Burmese Buddhist history and you look at the landscape of Burmese Buddhism today, and this is leaving just leaving aside all of those thorny and uncomfortable issues of the nationalist monks and those supporting the military and against Muslims and, and such. That's that's another another very important topic. But just leaving that aside for a moment, if you're just looking at the ways of being a practitioner, of being a Buddhist, of following the teachings, there's uh, that that kind of surface uniformity is really underlied by a, a, a quite a degree of experimentation and daringness and trying new things and incorporating in different ways and sometimes pushing a bit too far and having a bit of controversy or tension with other traditions or authorities. Um, that's mm-hmm. been a part of Burmese Buddhist history uh, for, for, for centuries and it's still true today. And so I think living within that and this is just all tagging what you said with the waiter or the, the the taxi driver being familiar with Goenka's visit, that this to me is kind of symbolic of a much deeper uh, touch that many people have across many professions of just being interested in the landscape of Burmese Buddhism as someone in other countries might be interested in sports or politics or business or um, whatever else one is following in the world. People are just following the developments and the recent history and the, the, just the mm-hmm. general landscape of what Burmese Buddhism is. And I think that's something that we really miss in the West and that as, as, as we understand how it operates in Burma, not that everything's perfect, but it does give, it can provide that sense of playfulness and experimentation and, and, um, mm. and uh, trying something and seeing how it goes. So, yeah. Yeah. 
that's so that's so interesting yeah I guess um that's you know we're human aren't we and we you know just because a society has a you know a buddhist culture it's not to say that it's it's uniform by any means because we're all different and we're all we're all seeking you know um i mean we're seeking the same things but in different ways so yeah that's a very yeah very interesting observation um and it actually reminded me when i was in yangon um i uh, I went to um, a park. I was staying near the Sule Pagoda, and mm. um, there was a there was a man. I was reading a book, and there was a man there who sort of came up to me and he said, "Oh, um, you know, is that an Oscar Wilde book or something?" I don't know. He wanted to talk about Oscar Wilde, I think, because he saw I was I was English, mm. um, <laughs> and um, we got chatting, and he and he was telling me that he. Um, you know, he volunteered at an orphanage and um, uh, he was showing me all these pictures and he taught there and he, you know, helped to feed them. And I thought, wow, this is fantastic. You know, there's this random man. It just feels like everyone is kind of, I don't know, doing doing something, doing something helpful. Um, you know, I mean, I didn't didn't meet that many people, but it's, it felt like the people I did meet were doing quite incredible things. You know, they were by sort of English standards, it's like, wow, gosh, you're you're really sort of going out of your way to help people. And and he actually he's I said, you know, and, and I would never do this in England, I don't think, or or many places, but for for some reason I really um I had a very good sort of intuition about this man and I said, you know, would you take me to to see this orphanage? You know, I'm I'm really interested in actually going to visit. And he said, well, he said, I, um, I think the orphanage was was closed or something that day. I can't remember the exact reason, but it, we weren't able to go. But he said, um, but I am going to this monastery where I, I support um, the monks. Um, I think he, um, I think he sort of helped uh, with, he was, he was sort of volunteering for them. I can't remember exactly what he did, but he sort of, organized community events or something he sort of was the the go-between for the monks and the community so he said do you want to come to this to this monastery with me uh, and I was like yeah sure you know <laughs> this this random man who I'd only known for sort of half an hour I was like yeah so we you know get on a local bus and um you know no idea where I'm going but but sort of trusting that I'm going to this monastery and and yeah sure enough went to this lovely monastery and I, and um, he introduced me to to one of the monks and we sat and had a cup of tea together um, and you know the monk couldn't speak any any English um, so Mo the man was was translating um, and it was just really it was like wow gosh look at that you know an hour ago I was sitting in a park reading a book and now I'm having tea with a monk um, you know, he's telling me to become a nun. <laughs> yeah, that was one of the few things he said was, you shave your head and become a nun. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
So, mm, yeah. That's great. Um, I, I want to get to what you were talking about just a bit earlier with you were mentioning that you, you took this short visit to Myanmar. You desperately wanted to come back and spend extended time as a practitioner digging deeper into the, the, the culture and the monastic environment. And then the pandemic happened and then the coup and, and just how devastating that was. So uh, I think there's been a lot of commentary about the coup from um, from those that are looking at it from more academic or journalistic angles and obviously the people that are caught up in that, but for the, uh, the, the foreign practitioners and for those that Myanmar ser- serves as this place where there are these spiritual opportunities that, that are open and that one has, has come and benefited from them, the, mm-hmm. the coup definitely from faraway places, it, it has an impact on, um, on just remembering how special the country's been and the interaction with the people. So I'm wondering for you, as you first got word of the coup and as you um, followed along to understand what was happening, having experience with the country directly and then also being a beneficiary of of this practice, uh, not having even been there, but the, the, the this particular tradition originating there, what mm. were your thoughts and feelings as you were following along, and what uh, what was there any sense of um, of how you might like to be engaged or what you might like to do that that was coming as well? Mm. Yeah, it was. Um, I think perhaps like like many people, when I first heard about it, I I just wasn't. I mean, it was so shocking, but I just had this sense that it wasn't going to, it, that, that something would happen and, and it wasn't going to be prolonged. Um, at least that's what I, I hoped. And, you know, it's like when I saw, I mean, your platform has just been so fantastic, Joa, for, for keeping up to date with what's been going on. Um, Thank you. I remember, I remember in those early days, you, you know, sort of showing how, you know, people, all the people out on the streets and, you know, it almost felt like the the power of the people was going to, you know, that was going to, um, that was going to win. That was, that was somehow the, the, the strength, um, and that, that good volition was, was going to win. Um, and I think as the weeks and months pass by and, and, you know, I, I realized the severity of it through, um, things you were posting um oh it's it just it, it's left me with with such um such a heavy a heavy heart um and I know that I wasn't you know I wasn't in the country for very long when I did go but I felt such a connection to the country and to the people that it it was it was heartbreaking and um and I think I felt a real sense of like I, I need to do something but I don't know I don't know how and I think a lot of people felt this sense of um you know there's a there's a helplessness that comes when something is happening um you know in another country and you know I was signing petitions I was donating I was sending meta and I just thought you know these things are all helping but you know what else can I do? What else can I do? Um, and I think in these in these times of of crisis, you know, we have to we have to look at what we're able to contribute um, because we all have different skills. Um, and and I think that um, 
for me, this for me, Sati is a um, you know my my business is a it's a way for me to bridge um, bridge this gap between the service that I do at the centre and making a living. And so, because I see it as a as a sort of service, of course, I'm I'm earning money from it, but because I see it as a service, um, I my my volition is like how can I help as many people as possible through this mission and so I thought well you know it's it makes so much sense for me to you know to to run a campaign where where you know some of the um the profit um some of the, the money I'm getting from the sales is going towards a good cause and for me, this this Burmese cause is incredibly close to my heart, um, and you know, because of you know, especially because of the the practice and the and the gratitude that I that I feel towards the country and the people. Um, but I think it's really been cemented by some friendships that I made when I was in Burma. Um, you know, I met some girls. Um, through the Vipassana course that I sat and they were they were so kind and 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 lovely and they took me and some other meditators out for for lunch a couple of days after we finished the course and you know they paid for everything and it was it was just they were such incredible Mm -hmm. people Mm -hmm. and so I think having that kind of personal connection with people in the country in this country that that's going through such hardship at the moment, um, it's just reinforced my my desire to to help. Um, and I've I've been in contact with them, you know, to sort of check they were. Especially in the early days, mm. I kept sending them messages to check they were okay, and you know, mm. and they would always be very light in their response. They'd say, you know, yeah, we're we're fine. Don't worry about us. Um, but I do wonder whether, you know, whether they were perhaps withholding information because they didn't feel safe to say anything else. I just don't know. Perhaps, you know, they, they are, um, they are fine. Um, yeah, but uh, yeah, I think those, those friendships really, um, yeah, they, they were sort of, they just, they just helped cement that volition um yeah so and i i I think um you know because the the country is just um yeah it's it's very close to my heart and um yeah and i also actually met uh i was serving a few months ago i was serving with a burmese girl who who lives in england um but is um uh, her family are all still in Burma, and and she was she was telling me how she she basically cried every day for the first year um, because of everything that's happening. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and I just could see, I could just see the pain, and and she also said that because I I was asking you know I was like really interested to actually speak to her because I said you know what are your family telling you? What, what's, you know, do you speak to them on the phone? What, how are they? 
And she said, well, she said they can speak on the phone, but they can't talk about anything to do with what's happening because, you know, they don't know if the line is is bugged or, you know, they right. just, everyone feels so unsafe that, that no one can even talk about it. Um, and she was telling me also that her sister is a civil servant in Yangon and um, and her family all really want her to, to leave um, her position, you know, because they don't want her to be working for essentially the military. But her sister is so terrified um, because she knows that if she leaves, then she will have to, she'll have to go on the run. Because she she mm -hmm. won't you know she her her safety would be compromised potentially. Mm. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's a very. Um, I just feel like we there's there's something we can all do, no matter how small, um, by using our our skills and um, you know coming together to to help. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I think that when the coup first hit, you know, very few people can say that they're prepared to know how to handle a sudden military coup. I, I say very few people because unfortunately in Myanmar, there is an older generation that does have those institutional memories of the bad old days, but the young generation did, did not. They did not really even believe those stories and suddenly had to uh, find uh, just a... Um, a, a backbone of steel that you don't know you have until those situations. And I think that one of the things I also appreciate about what you're saying is that I think it's, it's so important to tell these stories, these very true and authentic stories about Myanmar as a giver and a provider. Uh, I think that it, it's so misunderstood in the way it, it can be characterized in international media as being a a failed place that always is in need of help, that's in need of pity, that's uh, that that needs to receive the the good wishes and the help of other people, and I think that that's a very distorted version from one of the most, as you and I know, one of the most generous places in the world, and mm -hmm. uh, a, a country and a people that are such tremendous givers and so gracious, and giving not just material things like taking you out to to eat for a lunch, but giving spiritual teachings, offering a spiritual home, offering you to to be a nun and to have all your needs taken care of, so you can you can you can pursue a spiritual development of letting go of things and that this the 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 giving that we are now doing to Myanmar is not the giving out of pity or um, of someone advantage to someone less advantaged it's it's part of a reciprocal relationship especially for for those of us who've benefited from spiritual teachings or from visits to the country that is is reciprocating what has already been given for so long, either directly or indirectly. Uh, and I think that it is, there is an unsafety there. When you talk about your friends not really knowing how safe they are, there are definitely people that are in more danger based on their location, based on their involvements, but there's also no safety anywhere. There's there's no, not even in one's own home. I mean, soldiers, the soldiers uh, have, are, are basically now just bands of marauding thieves and rapists and, and murderers that 
are just burning and pillaging their way through the country right now through the reports that we're seeing. Uh, it hasn't really affected the cities on the same scale, um, on the same intensity and consistency, although even in the cities, they they sometimes get bored or drunk or angry and they just, they, they fire weapons in random homes. Um, uh, countless people, Burmese have told me about uh, bullets that have ended up in their homes or or things that have broken because bombs or mortars have have been nearby. Just un- unimaginable, unfathomable to have to to live through that. And they, um, we we know that the this current military is not very well trained and they're not very motivated, and so they don't pick fair fights. They don't look to fight to have battles with PDFs or or EAOs that can uh, that usually beat them in pretty convincing victories they look to go after vulnerable populations they look to go after villages that are undefended or IDP camps of people who've already fled or ethnic areas where they already have tensions and because one side is by and large being much more humane and being careful about the innocents and the other isn't that's a huge disadvantage that they're able to continue pressing and there's stories of uh, surprise attacks launched on certain bands of soldiers who then turn in the other direction and run to the nearest village to burn that village because they want to take out their vengeance and want to inflict pain on someone for the pain they just received. And so there is a, a uh, the whole country hasn't blown up yet and hopefully it won't, but there, there, there isn't any safety in terms of where one can go and there's certainly no higher authority to appeal to when it's these authorities that are just these bands of uh, raiders and raiders uh, around the the country so uh, so going moving to the current promotion that we are launching on the eve of the the release of this episode and is, is lasting for uh, a couple weeks beyond this date um, as you mentioned, there is a portion of that that will be going towards the Better Burma nonprofit, which is the greater nonprofit which our our podcast rests under. And this nonprofit was founded uh, several weeks after the coup. We didn't have any background uh, in nonprofits before this, but as we mentioned, everyone just had to do whatever they can. One of the things we could do was set up a legal mechanism for being able to collect donations from well-wishers around the world to go to humanitarian missions in Myanmar. And all of the donations that we receive go strictly towards humanitarian missions. They go strictly towards nonviolent needs, ranging everything from IDPs to clean drinking water to medicine and COVID relief, um, protecting uh, vulnerable populations who are suddenly under assault and need to, to quickly move and be safe in some other area, uh, feeding monks and nuns, uh, going to poor areas as well. So the, a wide range of missions, obviously CDM, Civil Disobedience Movement as well, a, a wide range of nonviolent humanitarian missions. And so with any purchase of any of the products of Sati Design from now for the next couple of weeks, a, a portion will go towards this. And I, I was thinking about this, and I think one of the things that struck me is that as we were talking about meditation cushions being invested in shawls, as I gave my story, being invested with this kind of significance, this kind of mindfulness, who, who gave it to you, where it was procured, how it was made, um, the quality and the aesthetic and the practicality, all of this. And it, it, it's something that can accompany through one's life on a spiritual journey. Uh, the uh, I was thinking how special it is that 
um, to think of having a meditation cushion, as we've talked about, that would be for life, but knowing that the purchase of this cushion was going towards the place which one can say made the meditation possible, that the meditation originated in a place which is, uh, or at least this particular tradition, the Goenka tradition, Goenka and his line of teachers growing up in Burma, obviously the Buddha came from India. Um, many, many centuries ago, but this particular practice coming from Burma and now Burma being under so much stress and tension that this meditation cushion, as one continues to use, knowing that part of the proceeds of acquiring this went back to that place where the meditation was made possible. So it's this kind of beautiful loop that is, uh, is 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 connecting many different pieces, which is quite lovely when you think about that intentionality. Mm. And and closing, just a, a thought. You know, I I agree with what you said. Everyone has something they can do, and whether it's sending meta, giving donations, um, giving some kind of volunteer practical support, checking in on friends. Some of these things don't cost any money. Simply to send an email to friends is, and seeing letting them know that you care is uh, does does a tremendous amount. Uh, we've benefited, our, our nonprofit, I should say, has benefited from similar individuals who've just taken it upon themselves. A, a German woman in Berlin who just decided to do bake sales for a month with donating all the proceeds to Better Burma, just cooking um, uh, co- cooking and selling muffins and cookies and such. And uh, had another recording artist who did a kind of musical compilation and all the proceeds, again, that went to Better Burma. So these kind of creative ways that one could step up and can can contribute either through uh, fundraising, through little acts of fundraising that then go into the pot and help the people, or even things that are more advocacy and awareness. We did an interview with a... Uh, a, a, a graffiti artist in Montreal who just decided to paint a mural on one of the streets in Montreal reflecting the experiences in Myanmar and what they're going through just to try to bring that out. There was a very famous mural that just went up and I think it was Belgium. It was somewhere in in Western Europe, I think Cup of Tea is the Instagram account, or Switzerland. I think it was Switzerland where where it went up, uh, also depicting it. Uh, there was a, a guy I saw online that was, um, I think, in Tennessee or somewhere in the U.S. that was simply playing bagpipes. And he was just playing bagpipes, trying to raise awareness about the attention. And then, of course, one of the, an account that many people follow that's quite inspiring is this guy who, uh, in Atlanta, who just decided to run 5K every day uh, for Burma and has done that since the coup and has gotten people around the world to do that. So whether it's mm-hmm. small things that are encouraging uh, advocacy or whether they're small actions that are bringing fundraising, these these are the power of the individual. And all this momentum counts, you know, in the past, mm-hmm. uh, when these things have happened in Myanmar and, and the, the military knows this very well, there's condemnation at first and shock and horror from the the why the, the big organizations and the, the leaders of countries and people reading the news but then life goes back to normal and people forget they get distracted by other things and the military is able to to really when they know they're in the shadows to really um, do what it takes to retain their control and oppression. But these acts are so important because they're they're trying to turn this tide. And just as Generation Z in Burma today has done things that no other resistance group has ever done in, in past moments of trying to unroot this evil uh, around the world, there's also a role. And however small the action is to be able to 
not just quietly go away and lose attention and lose focus. But in, in these small ways, they add up to something larger, which is sustained attention, sustained motivation, sustained resistance to the military and solidarity with the people. And that's what this platform is trying to do. And that's what your initiative is also doing. So really thank you for that. Mm. Well, thank you as well, Joab. What, what you're doing is just absolutely, um, absolutely incredible. Um, you know, just just making people aware of of what's happening, um, and and not not giving up as well. You know, continuing to um, to inform people. I think it's so important. Mm, well, just following the lead of our brothers and sisters in Myanmar, just trying to to follow in their sacrifices and their hope, and just just um, mm-hmm. just hope they know that we're not alone, that there's allies who do care, and that from yeah. our freedom and safety, we're we're using yeah. we're using that to be able to work and speak on their behalf. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Mm, so with that, thank you so much for joining us and taking the time to talk about your spiritual journey and, and your product. And thanks for this special promotion period, which is starting today. Mm, thank you so much, Joa. Thank you. We want to present a special opportunity for donors who are committed to our show. While we want to stress that we greatly appreciate donations of any size, larger donations, of course, are particularly helpful. For that reason, we're encouraging donors with means to consider sponsoring a full episode for a one-time donation of $350 or more. Donations in this category can include a dedication, if you'd like, to a person or organization, as well as a quotation or expression. Or your generous donation can be anonymous. The choice is yours. In either case, it would give you the satisfaction of knowing that you enabled at least one more episode to be produced for the benefit of the people in Myanmar who have suffered so much at the hands of the military. If you would like to join in our mission to support those in Myanmar who are being impacted by the military coup, we welcome your contribution in any form, currency, or transfer method. Your donation will go to support a wide range of humanitarian missions, aiding those local communities who need it most. Donations are directed to such causes as the Civil Disobedience Movement, CDM, Families of Deceased Victims, Internally Displaced Person, IDP Camps, Food for Impoverished Communities, Military Defection Campaigns, Undercover Journalists, Monasteries and Nunneries, Education Initiatives, the Purchasing of Protective Equipment and Medical Supplies, COVID Relief, and much more. We also make sure that our donation fund supports a diverse range of religious and ethnic groups across the country. We invite you to visit our website to learn more about past projects as well as upcoming needs. You can give a general donation or earmark your contribution for a specific activity or project you would like to support, perhaps even something you heard about in this very episode. All of this humanitarian aid work is carried out by our nonprofit mission, Better Burma. Any donation you give on our Insight Myanmar website is directed towards this fund. Alternatively, you can also visit the Better Burma website, betterburma.org. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-B-U-R-M-A dot org and donate directly there. In either case, your donation goes to the same cause and both websites accept credit cards. You can also give via PayPal by going to paypal.me slash betterburma. Additionally, we take donations through Patreon, Venmo, GoFundMe, and Cash App. 
Simply search Better Burma on each platform and you'll find our account. You can also visit either the Insight Myanmar or Better Burma websites for specific links to those respective accounts or email us at info at betterburma.org. If you'd like to give it another way, please contact us. Thank you so much for your kind consideration and support.